All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the completed canon, inspired word. Thank you for the Spirit's ministry in our lives to remind us of the things that are most important to us, to you, in time. May we continue to realize what it means to be saved daily, what it means to be sanctified experientially. These are the things that we can rest assured of their reality based on a cross, which we are most grateful and thankful for. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification, Part 55. We're just getting back to um, sanctification proper. We had um, that sidebar, if you remember, with predestination. We did a whole lot of work on the fact that by grace you are predestined to suffer, and then secondarily, by grace you are predestined to prosper. And then there was quite a few caveats, one main one on the topic of prosperity that, uh, truth be told, was fantastic to see. So we're heading on back to uh, where we left off with that framework. Remember with the salvation perspectives, we did that in full measure. And then um, we were into the sanctification perspectives uh, when we had departed. So now we're getting back to that. But before we do that, there's... Um, a question, really just sort of some synthesis here before we get back to that. Um, what, does it, what does it mean to live the gospel reality? I use that phrase, and um, you know, I kind of make the assumption that by now everybody's pretty comfortable with it. Um, but what does it mean to live the gospel reality? And how does this compare to, say, quote, living the spiritual life. So we have two sort of catchphrases, if you would. What does it mean to live the gospel reality, and how does that compare to living the spiritual life? Are these different or one and the same concept? Well, why don't we let Scripture give us the answer to that? Go to Romans 15, 13. Romans 15, 13. So to start with, the Spirit wants to synthesize some things with us. I think it's really to guard against us making things too compartmentalized in our souls. Uh, we get stuck on phrases. We get, quote, catchphrases in our souls, and we end up running with them, and they become false doctrines even, in the sense that they're compartmentalized I think he's saying, don't do that. Don't be tempted to do that thing. So there's just different ways to describe the same rose bush, in other words. Living the gospel reality versus living the spiritual life. Are those two different things? Well, Paul brings all of that together in one passage here that's definitely worth noting. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that's a reference to the gospel, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Well, that's a reference to the spiritual life. So there you have it. Romans 15, 13 brings the gospel and the spiritual life together, synthesized even. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Remember, I think of uh, Colossians 3.1 when we talked about uh, you know, the filling of the Spirit. Right? Let the fullness of Christ dwell in you. Well, that echoes here as well. So these things are all connected. That's what he's saying. Don't compartmentalize anything just because we're on a certain topic and we're being purposely sort of nearsighted just to work out the details of a particular uh, piece of doctrine, let's call it. Don't lose sight of the connective tissue. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. So furthermore, not only do we have the essence of what we're trying to synthesize, but also we have the ability, the motivation, the emphasis of Paul on the subject themselves. He says, look, he says, I have written very boldly to you. That's one Greek word, by the way. Very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God. Up here on the board, just to emphasize that for a moment. Because of the grace, Paul understood completely that his strength was never from himself, rather it was by the grace of God. Any boldness that he exhibited, a la Romans 15, 15, was founded on this very fact. It was because of the grace that he spoke the way he did about living the gospel reality, living the spiritual life, uh, these kinds of things. So Paul understood completely that his strength was never from himself, rather it was by the grace of God. Any boldness that he exhibited was founded on this very fact. To put this phrase into context in our own studies, grace is the means by which we live the gospel reality and the spiritual life. Again, grace is the means by which we live the gospel reality in the spiritual life. These things are all gifts. Having the visibility, having the assurance, having the hope, having the faith, having the Spirit Himself indwelling you, all these things are grace gifts. One is of the other, so to speak. And I was reflecting on this as I've written profusely in my next book, which is in editing now, so everybody can stare at Monica until we get it. As I've written profusely in my next book, overtly arrogant chest beaters are most often facades. They realize their weaknesses and cling to the hope that a good show 
will deter anyone from actually, quote, looking behind the curtain. That's a facade. Most chest beaters, the arrogant sorts, are really just showboating, kind of like the peacock, right? Or um, gorillas do that a lot, too. They like beat their chest and run around and roll around, and they don't really do anything. Just making a show, so nobody wants to tangle with them. Right? That's what arrogant people are like. You know, we can learn a lot from Paul, who was not arrogant, who admittedly might have struggled with arrogance, but in all fairness to him, uh, he wasn't that type. He wasn't the chest-beating type. He had the ability to be that way. He could have browbeat people to death. He was smarter than most people, but he didn't. So we can learn a lot from Paul, hence the Spirit's inspiration of so much Scripture at his hand. Again, let's continue. That was just to amplify how Paul was writing. Romans 15, 15, he says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God. And again, because of the grace, Paul understood completely that his strength was never from himself, rather it was by the grace of God. Any boldness that he exhibited, Allah, Romans 15, 15, was founded on this very fact. Let's continue. Verse 16. To be a minister, remember we're still sort of congealing or synthesizing this idea of the gospel, living the gospel reality, living the spiritual life. Now we've got Paul who's writing about both, both of those things, bringing it all together boldly because of grace. And that's that same activity that has to happen in your soul. It's the same way that these things come together. It's, look, it's one thing to have you know, the gospel compartmentalized and have like a little nice little tidy doctrine on the shelf or in your notebooks or, or whatever, right? It's another thing to have them synthesized. You know, on one side you have the gospel, over here you have, you know, quote, spirituality, over here you have the spiritual life, over here you have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and you have all these things compartmentalized. It's another thing to bring them all together. There's a process that happens, and you, there's, there's a certain boldness when it comes to all of this that you must have for that to happen. And this is what he's conveying. Romans 15, 16, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, there's the gospel again, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit, as the spiritual life in view again. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, the gospel, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That's where his boldness comes from. It was because of the grace that he received. It was because of the grace that he was able to live the gospel reality the way he lived it. Live the spiritual life the way he lived it. And that's what you want. You want that sense of confidence, don't you? Because when you're that confident, you sleep at night. You have peace. You're not 
beating your chest till it hurts so that everybody leaves you alone. You could care less about what the rest of the world is up to, except by means of how you might help them, or for purposes of wanting to help them. That's a different story, though. So I will not presume to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So we see a sense of unparalleled, if you would, confidence in Paul's voice here. Or I should say, um, rare confidence in Paul's voice here. And since confidence is often one of the most attractive things to see in a person, we must ask ourselves, where does it come from? Where does it come from? The answer should be obvious, but just in case it isn't. Paul's confidence comes from being in Christ. Allah, verse 17. The same source of all true confidence in this world. Paul's confidence is a direct result of his humility. And just a couple of things on humility up here on the board. And again, I'll say that again. Paul's confidence is a direct, direct result of his humility. And it seems odd because the flesh, and I write about this in that book, the flesh likes to sort of use its own strength as a show of confidence. But that eventually is wearisome. Eventually, the flesh runs out of power. But God's grace, God's omnipotence never does. That's Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So his strength never runs out. But human strength always runs out. So it depends on which one you're depending on in your boldness. Because one's going to fail eventually. So Paul's confidence is a direct result of his humility. Two things about humility. Humility is simultaneously aggressive in its tact and confident in what it discovers and reaffirms. To personify it, it says, quote, My master is hands down the greatest of all. Therefore, as long as I abide in him, keep his commandments, love him, all will be well. Again, two things about humility. Humility is simultaneously aggressive in its tact, and confident in what it discovers and reaffirms. In other words, it's aggressive with grace. It seeks God's promises, aggressively even, even leans on them for affirmation. And when it receives affirmation, it's a result of actually seeking in the first place, therefore, their strength and their resolve, the person's resolve, is increased all the more. And it really, I'm just trying to personify it here, it says, you know, my master is hands down the greatest of all. Therefore, as long as I abide in him, keep his commandments, love him, all will be well. That's true confidence. Because nowhere in that equation, as Paul said, is the flesh. I only want to boast in Christ alone. I only want to understand my confidence, my boldness, as a result of grace. The humble person lives the gospel reality, a la Romans 1.17, and desires to share their prosperity with others. Humble people aren't selfish lovers. They are generous. Arrogant people, on the other hand, are stingy lovers, manipulative, petty, lacking confidence, and therefore jealous. 
Again, Romans 15, 18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, uh, excuse me, Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So you see the sort of amalgamation, if you will, or the bringing together of um, a few concepts, two of the main ones that we're trying to bring together since the beginning of class, living the gospel reality and living the spiritual life. The point of our reading this passage, for starters again, is to amplify what the Spirit began our lesson with even on Sunday. We might say that we ought to have very direct conversations with our Father in Heaven. Something like this. Hi, Dad. You ordained this life, this body, this mind, this heart, before I was even born. You want me to glorify you, right? Then this is your problem to solve. I'm here. I'm available. P.S. Thank you for your patience. And you can insert your name right there. The idea is that, look, as Scripture discloses, that kind of a conversation with God, that's not disrespectful at all. That's actually agreeing with Him. That's homologeo. That's confessing that you're too weak to solve the problems that are before you. Can you imagine if Jesus Christ tried to solve the issue in his flesh? Or Paul? Or any of these sort of giants in the Bible? So it's okay to have this. It's a very good thing to have this kind of a conversation with Dad, about, I don't know, what, probably four to six months ago now, it was all about understanding that a conversation with our Father in heaven is a very good thing. Being conversational with Dad, having a personal rapport, not a rapport even with the words in a Bible, but a, a rapport with a person is very important. So you don't have to, quote, church up your language. He already knows your heart. So if you don't speak this way, if you speak more proper or less proper, it's not the point. The point is that you realize that anything that he's asking you to do by means of a command is his problem. Because if you try to fulfill his commands in your own personal power, then it's wood, hay, and straw. It's not even any good. So you have to go to him. This is what he's saying. I want you to go to me. I want you to realize that this is my problem to solve. So as, as Scripture discloses, this is not a disrespectful conversation to have with God. As a matter of fact, it's the conversation He's been waiting for all of His children to have with Him. In fact, He can't pour out the greater grace that James writes of in James 4.6 until we have this kind of conversation with Him. How's He going to pour out grace if you still think it's your problem? If you're in the way, how's he going to pour out grace to you if you're trying to solve the problem? So this might be the other side of the conversation. Hi, my child. 
For years I watched you assume responsibility over your sanctification. That was arrogant of you. Now that I've got your humility, I can solve my problem without you getting in the way. P.S. Regarding my patience, you're welcome. The important thing is, that's supposed to be a thing, the important thing is that you're here now. That's the kind of dialogue we should have with our Father in heaven. That's not disrespectful at all. That's called getting from point A to point B. And it has everything to do with humility. Humility says, look, this is your problem. God says, I know. I've been waiting for you to realize that. I've been waiting for you to get out of your own way. I've been waiting for you to get out of my way so we can get this thing going. So let's synthesize now. The Bible tells us that the righteous live the gospel reality by faith and that faith and courage are analogous in many ways and that humility is aggressive and that the Spirit guides us always. As I was writing this, I immediately thought of David, his humility, his attitude while confronting a giant, for example. We might rightly conclude that living the gospel reality is really the result of reconciling plenary scripture. Living the gospel reality, living the spiritual life. Just how about just living? I think I think of the um, the woman, the wore out woman, who had abused herself for years. You know, she was dead even though she was alive. She was a walking corpse. Remember that visual? We want to live. We don't want to be walking corpses. We want to live. However you'd like to describe it, live in the gospel reality, live in the spiritual life, that's not specifically important. What's important is you understand what the Spirit's trying to convey to you, to your soul right now. Look, now's the time to live. For as long as it's called today, we're to encourage each other. To do what? To live. Not be walking corpses. Not walking around waiting for the rapture or waiting for death or waiting for it your exit strategy from this world because God left you here so that he could bring glory to himself. So it takes a certain humility, first of all, to accept that reality. That he says, yes, I'm going to leave you there in that sewer pipe, but you know what? It's my problem. I made it my problem before you were even born. Your flesh is going to tell you it's your problem, but it's not your problem, it's my problem. So get your flesh out of the picture. Get out of the way. And we white-knuckle it and this kind of a thing because we're ridiculous control freaks and we have problems. So we might rightly conclude that living the gospel reality is really the result of reconciling plenary Scripture. I hope you know what that means by now. I've used it enough lately. Hopefully, Plenary Scripture just means the big picture. All of Scripture, bring it all together. It reconciles with itself. If anything doesn't fit, something's wrong. And the more scripture you get, and the more um, intent you are on bringing it together and seeing it come together the right way without any, you know, oh, I'll check that out later type thing. The more intent you are on bringing it together, the more you're going to see the big picture. And that's what plenary scripture, when I use that phrase, I just want to let you know. So we might rightly conclude that living this way is the result of reconciling plenary Scripture. I know that sounds like a mouthful. What the Spirit's saying is that the more you grow 
in the grace and knowledge of God, the more settled you will be. The more peaceful your existence will be. And that's the good news that exists beyond the day of your salvation. The beauty of doing what you're doing right now is that you're going to, if you're humble, be settled all the more. The, big, the more you have of the big picture, the more settled you're going to be. The smaller, the smaller, you know that detail, the one that, you know, the one that aggravated you five minutes before you walked through the doors? Remember how big it felt? Remember how upset you were and it was like this big thing? Well, put that into perspective with the big picture of God's plan. And your little problem goes whoop to like one pixel on the, you know, the television screen, if even that. That's what big picture perspective gives you. It gives you the right perspective so that you realize that the details of life are just that. Here today, gone tomorrow, detail, detail, detail. No one can ever take your salvation from you. No one can ever overpower God. So all your little problems that you think are so big, they're not big at all. And once you get that, you become settled. Big picture gives you settled, gives you peace in your existence, and then you're able to live. So that's the good news that exists beyond salvation. In other words, sanctification, though a reasonably technical term, is really about learning how to live a life of confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. In other words, yeah, I'm walking in this direction, and this is the right direction for me to go. There's nothing worse than walking forward and wondering if you're on the wrong path. So sanctification is really about learning how to live a life of confidence in Christ. And think about Paul's words in Romans 15, all the things he was bringing together, and then what did he attribute it to? He said, I'm doing this very boldly because of the grace. Stated slightly different, if you're so in love with Christ... Does anything else really matter? Think about it this way. If you're so in love with him, what happens when the attractive seducer comes along? You know, the one that used to be able to grab your attention, your lust even. What happens? You know what happens? The person that's in love with their capital H husband tells the sleazy seducer to get lost. Take a hike. Been there, done that. Get lost. That's what happens when your eyes are on him, when your eyes are on your husband. You're not interested in being seduced. You're not interested in fornication. You're not interested in adultery. You're not interested in any of that stuff. Why? Because your eyes are on Christ. I only have eyes for you. Not bad, huh? I could have done better, but, you know, the musicians will get all jealous and then they'll try to recruit me. I do enough. That person will say, get lost. That's what Scripture says, as we've seen up here on the board. Second Peter 2.9a, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. 2 Peter 2.19b, For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. 
And we even talked about addictions, right? As much as the Bible speaks about addictions, it speaks even more about how God's grace is there for the humble as their vehicle for deliverance. So when that sleazeball comes around, you know, selling the same old garbage, the same old line, same old pickup line, you know, and you might have been the, you know, the addict in your past. Well, you now, with humility, have the ability to overcome that. Again, a person in love with their husband is loyal to him. James 1.12 in the message, Anyone who meets a testing challenge head-on and manages to stick it out is mighty fortunate. For such persons loyally in love with God, the reward is life and more life. That's your reward. If you're loyal to him, you get life and more life. And we've already talked about that. What, what are we all trying to do? We just want to what? Live our lives. How do you do that? Well, you're confident in your relationship with him. James, just to continue, 13 to 15, in the message, don't let anyone under pressure to give you or give in to evil say, God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. Lust gets pregnant, has a baby, sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. The final thought on this as an artifact from our work on addiction was this. Well, how do you do this thing then? How do I ensure that I'm not going to be carried away by the seducer again? That I'm not going to be carried away by my own lusts even? Well, it's eyes on Christ. Here's an old phrase. It's connect with Jesus. That's what the addiction mini-series was all about. That something's missing, and when something's missing... People turn to whatever's going to fill that void. So the idea is that we are to connect with Jesus. And that's where we are sanctified. That's how sanctification actually happens. Connect with Jesus. Pray with Him. Open your Bible and drink Him. Consume Him. John 6, 53-58. Watch as the Word washes over you and delivers you from your recurring lusts. John 6.56 He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Alright, that takes us back to where we departed in our primary course of study. Go to Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16 So a lot of that was review, some synthesis in there. I think as I alluded to earlier, the Spirit just really doesn't want you to make that mistake of hyper-doctrinalizing or compartmentalizing or looking for things that aren't there. He wants you to remain in that big picture. He's saying, this is about my son. I sent my son. The father says, I sent my son to save you. I sent the spirit to help you afterwards. One is central in the gospel. One is central in the spiritual life. Put these things together. They're all one and the same. I save, I sanctify. Do you see, the Bible's not that difficult. These are all the same thing. They're just different angles, different language that we use to talk about a different perspective, but it's on the same thing. He saves and he sanctifies. 
That's the good news, the gospel. God saves, he sanctifies. The gospel doesn't end after you're saved. The gospel continues on. Because God promises that if he saves you, he sanctifies you. That's good news too, isn't it? And because they're unified, it's one and the same gospel. That's why people that peddle a weak gospel have broken that truth. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, same guy that says very boldly at the end of this book. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. We began our review on Sunday up here on the board with this. Perseverance of the saints from faith to faith expresses that true faith is not a single event but a way of life. It endures. In this sense, the righteousness from God that is revealed is unique to true believers only, for they live by faith. In that way, then, Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer. Are there a variety of ways to describe it? Sure, we've already done it this evening, multiple times. Living the gospel reality. Living the spiritual life. Do you really think those are two different things? Of course they're not. Of course they're not two different things. They're the exact same thing. Just different descriptions about the methods that God might use, or the players that are involved, or the faculties that are involved. But it's the same thing. So Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer. A saved person is a sanctified person. Likewise, a person being saved daily is a person who is being sanctified daily. Hence our working framework. And this gets us back to the framework proper. We are on sanctification perspectives. Again, we've already been introduced to positional sanctification. We're talking about three phases from the manward side. Positional, experiential, ultimate. First things first, as we review again, only God can sanctify man. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. Only God can sanctify man. We've been exposing ourselves to a couple of key words in the Bible on the topic of sanctification, beginning with, Obviously, sanctify and sanctification. These words are used 106 times in the Old Testament and 31 times in the New Testament. In general, it refers to being set apart or the state of being so. It typically relates to matters of position and relationship. For example, regarding a person's standing with God. That's what we think of when we think of sanctify or sanctification. It is absolutely correct for a believer to say, I've been sanctified and I'm being sanctified in the same sentence. It's absolutely correct because that describes two different things from man's perspective. The other word noting here that relates to sanctification in the Bible is holy or holiness. It is used about 400 times in the Old Testament and 12 times in the New Testament referring to believers refers to being separated from that which is unholy. Christ was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, thus he was sanctified. 
Except for God, sinlessness is not necessarily implied, as even the holiest of priests in the Old Testament were sinners. So that brings up another sort of issue that we have to make sure we're good on in our souls up here on the board. Both sanctified and holy are context-sensitive in the Bible. Holiness, when we're talking about God, in other words, is absolute. But holiness, being sanctified, set apart for God's purposes, doesn't mean that a man or a woman is absolutely holy. It's a relative statement. As an example, we looked at how the Levitical priests were said to be, quote, holy relative to others, being set apart for the purposes of a holy God. Same Hebrew word, but different context in the same passage, even the same verse, even up here in the board. Leviticus 21.8, you shall consecrate, that's that Hebrew word, kadash, you shall concentrate or consecrate him, therefore, for he offers food of your God, he shall be holy, same Hebrew word, kadash, he shall be holy to you. And that's a relative holiness in view. For I, the Lord, who sanctifies, kadash, Hebrew, you, am holy, kadash, same Hebrew word, but that is a reference to absolute holiness. So you have proof right there that the same original language word is used four times in that one verse, but it means two different things. Speaking to relative holiness versus absolute holiness. It depends on where that word is being used and what the context is. Again, that's an important thing to remember whenever we talk about sanctification or holiness. Again, here's our working framework. And we've been on positionally or positional sanctification perspective. That's a reference to imputed righteousness or judicially speaking. We've been given a definition to get us situated. I'm going quickly because we've seen this before. Positional sanctification, imputed phase, if you would. God wills to sanctify, make holy the whole world by saving them through Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, that's a reference to positional positional salvation, are delivered to imputed judicial righteousness through justification. Romans 4, 23 to 25. That's all, you know, legal speak. But that's how it is. The gavel came down on the, at the cross. And then when we believe that, judgment is to our account. That's what it means to be positionally sanctified, to positionally, um, or positional salvation, be positionally set, if you would, So again, those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, positional salvation, are delivered to imputed judicial righteousness through justification. Romans 4, 23-25. A believer's position in Christ is the greatest inspiration for holy living. And that takes us, and that's that continuity, if you think of from faith to faith, the fact that you have been positionally sanctified means that you have access to experiential sanctification. It's an inspiration for holy living, in other words. Acts 20, 32, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 6, 11, Hebrews 10, 10, and 14, Jude 1, 1. We'll get to those. Now, on the point of justification in this slide, we've already noted Romans 4, 25. I'll give you the amplified. 
Jesus our Lord was betrayed and crucified because of our sins and was raised from the dead because of our justification, our acquittal, absolving us of all sin before God. Again, that's reference to justification. The point again on the board, positional sanctification, the imputed phase. God wills to sanctify, make holy the whole world by saving them through Jesus Christ. Those who have been saved from the penalty of sin are delivered to imputed righteousness through justification. A believer's position in Christ is the greatest inspiration for holy living, a.k.a. experiential sanctification. So the last statement in the point on the board echoes of from faith to faith in Romans 1.17. In other words, you've been saved. What happens after that? It's from faith to faith. There's a movement, if you would. And if you don't believe the first, how inspired are you going to be for the second? You have to have, you have to, that's what we call it, living the gospel reality, never forgetting what he's done for you, even at the very beginning of this road we're on. So this echoes of from faith to faith. In other words, positional sanctification from faith is the inspiration for experiential sanctification to faith. So let's just peruse the supporting passages so we can have this in our soul. Go to Acts 20.32. We'll just go to each one of these passages to get it shored up. Acts 20.32. Again, we're on positional sanctification, which is right next to um, positional salvation. Acts 20.32 And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's a reference to the imputed phase of sanctification. How about 1 Corinthians 1.2? Go there. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. And do not forget the value of how we started, the boldness, the confidence that you're going to gain. When you see, look, you see this on the board. And I said, all right, good, everybody go home. Half of you aren't going to go do your own homework, first of all. Right? Everybody's like, no, I would totally. I, I, I'm already wrote, I already wrote them down. I mean, right? You can walk away and take my word for it, or you can have confidence instilled in you by faith, by going to the word, because faith comes from hearing. What? The word of Christ. Now, this is why we do these things. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. You want Paul's confidence? Here you go. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified positionally in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. How about 1 Corinthians 6.11? 1 Corinthians 6.11. See, there's no substitute, folks, whether, you wanna, whether you're the Cliff Notes kid in college or you know, high school. There's no substitute for the word. 1 Corinthians 6.11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified positionally, but you were justified. In the name of the Lord, you see that connection between you know, positional sanctification and justification in our primary uh, definition on the board. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified positionally, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. How about Hebrews 10.10? Hebrews 10.10. And if you want any confidence whatsoever in any of this, folks, you have to have the Word. There's just some... Well, it's not just something, but to put it in lay terms, there's just something about seeing it with your own two eyes. There's just something about your soul, quote, seeing it at the spiritual level with its two own two eyes instead of just taking uh, borrowed convictions as your own. Hebrews 10.10 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How about verse 14? For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are what? Sanctified. And then lastly, go to Jude 1. Jude 1. Right before Revelation. Jude 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, that's a roundabout reference to positionally sanctified, those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Okay? So again, the point of the board, positional sanctification. God wills to sanctify, make holy the whole world by saving them through Jesus Christ, those who have been saved from the penalty of sin, are delivered to imputed righteousness through justification. A believer's position then in Christ is the greatest inspiration for holy living. So it doesn't just end, in other words. So that's the first of the three phases of sanctification we'll be looking at in Scripture. Uh, And it is the first in our framework up here in the board. Those are the sanctification perspectives. And just for the sake of categorical integrity, let's call it. Here's the salvation framework in tenses and sin being the emphasis. Remember, salvation implies being saved from sin. Sanctification means being sanctified to righteousness. That's the overall deliverance of the human being. Right? Two sides of the same coin. They're both guaranteed once you're saved. So just to, just as a refresher course, right? Our salvation perspectives were positional, experiential, and ultimate, except they were intense form. Positional from the penalty of sin, judicially on the other side. I'll show you a slide here in a moment. Um, I'll, I'll hold that for a second. Positionally from the penalty of sin, experientially from the power of sin, and then ultimately from the presence of sin. That's what we learned with the salvation perspective. So here's one way to graphically consider this framework we are working out in our souls, that we have, positionally speaking, saves from sin, the penalty, to sanctifies to righteousness, imputed righteousness. In other words, positionally, we're saved from the penalty of sin, we're sanctified by imputed righteousness. Does that make sense? We're saved from that thing, and we're given this thing. That's our position. Okay? We're saved from this thing, sin, We're sanctified and given this thing, righteousness. Experientially, we're saved from the power of sin. That's now. That's like life. We're saved from the power. That's our daily struggle. 
We're saved from the power of sin through grace. We're sanctified through imparted righteousness. In other words, it is possible by grace that we actually produce divine good fruit. Imagine that. But we, that is by grace, as Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. Any good fruit that's born in any of us is by the grace of God. So we dump the power of sin for imputed righteousness. And then that's that battle. But that's life, the way we know it. And then finally, ultimately, we're saved from the very presence of sin. We're delivered, if you would, sanctified to complete righteousness. In other words, we don't have any of it anymore. We're righteous, holy. Okay? Now, that's just one way to bring those two frameworks together. But it shows the movement. That's why I have that arrow. It's from to. Think of from faith to faith. You could superimpose that. From faith to faith. So I'm saying it's not hard, folks. This is, it's because it's we're so stupid. He really, let's face it. We're so dumb and we look for so many loopholes that God basically just covered all the bases. Right? Because if he said, all right, here's the rose bush. You like it? You want it? Yay! But I'm going to go around the back. So then he has to put a stuff. All right, the same rose bush, just making sure. Mm-hmm. I'll go around the side. It's the same rose bush. Mm-hmm. Go around the other side. You know, that's human beings. God saves and sanctifies, whether tenses or phases in view. God's grace through faith delivers us from sin to righteousness. That's the heavenly flow, in other words. That's what this is all about. Saves us from sin, saves us daily, delivers us to righteousness, sanctifies us. That's the flow. Regardless of the tense or phase, that's the flow. And that's how God sees it, right? To God, those are two orbs, those are two blobs. It's like I save and sanctify, it's done. I don't have to deal with the time construct. So I don't have phases and tenses. I save and I sanctify. It's already done in my book, says God. But that's the way we bitwise consume it. And that's a good thing with our finite minds. So that's the movement that the Spirit's been highlighting. We call it deliverance. We're delivered from one thing to another, from something horrible to something wonderful, from something evil to something good from something dark to something light you get you see how many i'm just going on with what the word says right that was like three or four different ways of saying the exact same thing from faith to faith exact same thing living the gospel reality the exact same thing living the spiritual life guess what exact same thing it's just different ways of describing the exact same will of god so we can overcomplicate things so badly. The beauty of all these different ways of describing it is that the more we understand about Scripture and the ways that it's described, it, the more confident we are. Because every basis is covered. Right? In other words, every area of our own lives has been tested and faith overcomes it eventually. That's the proof of our faith. So that's the movement of the Spirit, or that the Spirit's been highlighting, and we call it deliverance. Now here's something to really get your brain wrapped around. He won't save you without sanctifying you. 
He won't sanctify you without delivering you. He can't deliver you without sanctifying or saving you. I'll say it again. He won't save you without sanctifying you. He won't sanctify you without delivering you. He can't deliver you without sanctifying or saving you. Let's not forget where we have just come from either for the sake of pulling this all together as we press on forward. Remember, we just came from this. Predestined. All this stuff, folks, that diagram, however you'd like to look at it, all part of your predestination. God's grace never fails. If you are saved, you are sanctified. If you are sanctified, then he, has de- then he has delivered you. All of these aspects of his divine will were completed by decree before you were even born. That's the kind of harmony of gospel truth that he desires to impart to your soul. He doesn't want you to be insecure. He doesn't want you to be anxious for anything. That's the kind of harmony, the gospel truth, that he desires to impart to your soul. And the word will do it. It will impart vision to you. And once you have that, you'll be on your way to that invaluable spiritual asset called perspective. So much of all of this is just simply about perspective. And that's why he's giving us, in some granularity, this working framework. So it's critically important to our own understanding that we not lose sight of the connective tissue between positional and experiential sanctification. He's really, if you notice, he's spending a lot of time. I mean, we we started positional sanctification, then we shot off into predestination for weeks. So he's saying, do not miss this point. If you're confident about my saving you, about my sanctifying you at your salvation, then you should be just as confident about my sanctifying you daily, experientially. I will do it. There are road bumps, or there are speed bumps, roadblocks, but I will do it. You know why? Because I promised to do it, and I never fail. So he wants you to take that confidence you have in the cross, let's say, the gospel proper, and take it with you. That's what it means to live the gospel reality. If he can do that, if he can do the greater, he can do the lesser. So it's critically important to our own understanding that we not lose sight of the connective tissue between positional and experiential sanctification issues. Also, if we wish to fully comprehend God's intentions, we also cannot lose sight of the corresponding tenses of salvation. The more of the big picture we grasp, the greater our peace. There's a pers- speaking of perspective. Positional sanctification, again, this is just to put some closure on that first category of sanctification perspectives. Positional sanctification, all saints are equally sanctified in Christ. Since believers are sanctified judicially on the merits of Christ himself. In other words, it's not your righteousness. He didn't all of a sudden make you righteous. He Positionally speaking, he imputes Christ's righteousness to your account. Okay? So don't think that, you know, that's what happened. (laughs) It wasn't your righteousness. It was Christ's righteousness that was imputed to your account. And because that's the reality of it, that's the judicial reality, that's the way God sees it, 
then the sanctification that's in view is the same for everyone because everybody that's saved has the same righteousness, right? One's not better than the other. Therefore, as far as positional sanctification is concerned, we're all equally sanctified in Christ. So all saints are equally sanctified in Christ since believers are sanctified judicially on the merits of Christ himself. He has become righteousness unto them. Positional sanctification is perfected in all those who are saved. Now, I'm almost out of time, but I want to give you a graphic, just to, something to chew on before we go. Because here we stand in an all-too-often misunderstood transition. There are people that have hacked the gospel, as we've seen. They're peddling a weak gospel, um, one that only ends up with judicial or forensic aspects to it, one that drops the unity between salvation and sanctification. So here we stand in all the all-too-often misunderstood transition, that, let's call it, doctrinal space between positional and experiential things. Now, to help you out with this, think about it this way, and I think I'll have to end here. My screen is so little up here that it's hard for me to see. But This is a graphical way of looking at the phases of sanctification. Remember, God's perspective, so think of this as his whole perspective. Remember, God sees the whole parade all at once. We have time, this little timeline. Okay? So God's perspective, he's the Alpha and the Omega. But you have a perspective. So let's just say this is the head, there's my little crown on Jesus. This is Jesus. He's got his crown. You like that? I had to make that from scratch. I'm just saying. I'm like an artiste. You get saved, you get placed into the body of Christ, right? He's the head, we're the body. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride. But we are what we call positionally sanctified. Now, what I want you to think about when you think of positional sanctification, think of your relative proximity to Jesus Christ. Does it ever change from then on? Never. You're indwelled by him. So you're position in Christ, your relative position to Christ, positionally speaking, never changes. So from your perspective, being in Christ, this is exactly what happens. This little, let's call it this little circle, this organism, this thing, moves throughout time. But your relative proximity to Jesus Christ never changes. We might say that your relative position to Christ never changes. Okay? And that literally should be your perspective. You never lose him. He never le- lets you go. He's never lost one, etc., etc. We know this scripture that defines it. But he has time. So as time goes on, you're saved, you're placed into the body, you are positionally sanctified. Your relative proximity to him never changes. But we have time. God sees without time. But we have time. So this little... We move, basically. Time goes on, and Jesus is with his body as time goes on. Okay? As time goes on, there's an experiential aspect. There's a life to be lived. That's what life is all about. Even though God sees the whole thing, man, we have this perspective. We're never going to lose that position. We move throughout life. 
But life is dynamic. That's why I like to call it the dynamic spiritual life. Life is dynamic. So in that sense, we can say our relative experience with life always changes. Our relative position to Christ never changes. Our relative experience with life always changes. And then ultimately we get to heaven where position and experience are unified. We call that ultimate sanctification. Does that make sense? Those are the perspectives you should, you should have. It's from faith to faith, positional, experiential, ultimate sanctification. Again, just to reiterate, up here on the board, your relative position to Christ never changes. Your relative experience with life always changes. In heaven, your position and experience will be unified. In other words, everything becomes perfect. Nothing more, no more changes, no more old sin nature. Everything's unified. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.